This episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast was recorded before the tragic events took the life of four officer cadets at the Royal Military College of Canada. Christian Lillington and I met at the Royal Military College, and we speak about our experiences there. It was recorded before this terrible accident. Both Christian and I send our sincere condolences to the family of the four young Canadians and to the entire RMC family. You know, in retrospect, and hindsight is 2020. You know, I look back and, you know, had I had earlier intervention, you know, maybe 2007, 2010, 2012, there were moments in time in my career where had I just slowed down enough, um, you know, I think that things would have, all the symptoms and signs would have been saying, you need help. But one of the other things that's hard for me to manage, you know, now leaving the military to survive was that no one else recognized that in me either. No matter how strong or prepared a soldier is for battle, even warriors can break. This is Mental Health Week in Canada, and you're listening to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham, and this week we're talking to one of Canada's heroes, one of our veterans, about the road to wellness after serving Canada. And that quote, evoking the warrior spirit of those who wear uniforms serving our country, talking about the injuries that you can have from that service, both physically and mentally, is on the back cover of a new book, Parade State Zero, Leaving Military Leadership to Survive. I'm very fortunate today to be joined by a friend, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Christian Lillington, who grew up in a small fishing village in the northern tip of the Cape Breton Highlands. He left that beautiful part of the country to attend the Royal Military College, graduating in 1997, and then spent a career serving in the Royal Canadian Armoured Corps, retiring as a famed dragoon. I've had many dragoons work as part of my team over the year, and they would over the years, and they would tolerate me as an RCAF guy. He has a distinguished service record: a tour in Eritrea, two tours in Afghanistan in 06, 07, and in 2010. On the second tour, he was mentioned in dispatches for taking command of a group after one of the Chinooks crashed, being shot down by the Taliban, demonstrating great leadership. He made it to Lieutenant Colonel, promoted to that rank in 2014, and then commanded our base at CFB Meaford between 2015 to 2017. He's now an author. I'll plug that book again, Parade State Zero, Leaving Military Leadership to Survive. But most importantly, He's the partner to Kelly Donovan and father to four children and three stepchildren. Welcome to Blue Skies, Christian Lillington. Well, it's great to be here, Aaron. Thank you very much for that great opening. I appreciate all those kind words. Now, the most important thing, as a three-squadron guy from RMC, a couple of years ahead of, ahead of you, what squadron were you in at RMC? I was in five squadrons for the entirety of my four years there, so... Well, you did okay, despite that rocky start. And and look, what drew someone from a small fishing village in Cape Breton to the Canadian Armed Forces? And what was the name of that little village? The village is Neils Harbour, um, Nova Scotia. So it's just in the northern tip of Cape Breton. Um, 
what drew me to the forces, I think, was part of my character. You know, I grew up in a large family, uh, sort of blended family as well. Um, and what happened was uh, I, felt, I saw a lot of my sisters and my brother ahead of me go to university, sort of a little bit uncertain about what they wanted to do. And for me, I just I was ready just to start living. And so the military appealed to me um, because I was able to essentially not change my sort of very competitive nature, join a sort of tribe of my own and carry on. And that's sort of, uh, you know, I, I looked at a bunch of other universities, but when I was able to sort of um, look at the Royal Military College of Canada and Kingston, be given that opportunity, I thought this is obviously going to be something that matches where I think I am in life at the time. You know, and I was 18, just like when you were young. Uh, we both kind of did it not knowing really not not even having a, a brain that which was developed to make those kind of decisions now you're bilingual as well did, did you grow up in a pocket of of the francophone community in Cape Breton, or did you learn your french entirely through the canadian armed forces oh no i i learned it entirely through the canadian armed forces my first posting after being trained was the Dakartier in quebec so it was a bit of a rude awakening for me to uh, to be an anglophone immersed in a francophone environment and being told, "Here you go, now you have now you must lead." So I learned a little bit by force, but I quite honestly, Aaron, it's the only way to really learn it a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, and that's the twelve blonde or what's the regiment there? The armored regiment blonde du Canada. Yeah, and is that commonplace that there would be a an anglophone? Uh, given a posting into a junior officer role in Valcartier, or were you the exception of the rule? Um, at the time, there was a pretty uh, low um, pass rate amongst the sort of hard army trades. Um, and at the time, there was a lack of francophones in what is five brigade right now in Valcartier. And so I was actually given sort of the choice uh, at the time, you know, because of where I kind of finished on the program and whatnot, you know, where do you want to go? And I thought, you know, this could be a good opportunity for me. So a little bit was self-inflicted as well mm-hmm. um, in that sense. But um, I will, I can promise you that it made all the difference in my career after that though, because it, French has never been a stressor for me mm-hmm. and it can be a, a stressor for a lot of the senior leadership within the Canadian Armed Forces. Yeah. Well, Kudos to you. Bravo Zulu. I, uh, French was a stressor for me when I became leader of the party and I had my military French. And uh, and then your career really began on an operational level with the tour in Eritrea. Talk a bit about that and a bit about the experience, because I, I think all Canadians are aware of our mission in Afghanistan, the longest single Canadian Armed Forces mission in our history, you know, we're very familiar with that, but a lot of the operations, whether through UN and others, are lesser known. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I at the time, at the time when I was trained, um, I really wanted to go to the Balkans, you know, the Bosnia era, mm-hmm. uh, for the Canadian Forces. But it just, I was at the tail end of that, and I was given the opportunity to uh, to become a, a, a United Nations military observer. So essentially, unarmed and to go into one of the various missions that they have worldwide, generally tend to be in the continent of Africa. And so I was given, as you know, uh, the opportunity to go to Eritrea, which is just north of Ethiopia. The mission was both in Eritrea and Ethiopia. So I I proceeded to do that in May of 2001 as a young 24-year-old captain, you know, newly minted bilingual, sort of at the tail end of my first regimental tour. Which is always, which can always be a, a, very, a steep learning curve for most officers, 
Um, and here I was thrust into the middle of nowhere in Africa, literally eight kilometers from the Sudanese and Ethiopian border in a war, in a, in a demilitarized zone, surrounded by mines, um, and essentially trying to repopulate and analyze the pattern of life in order to make uh, you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia sort of re reintegrate into a sort of peacetime role. So and what would it, what would it typical, I know there's no typical day on these tours, but you know, what would you be doing uh, engaging with lo local government officials, NGOs, folks on the ground and, 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 and monitoring and reporting back in what, what's it was a typical part of that UNMO tour in Eritrea? Well, a lot of it was patrolling, and as you mentioned, connecting with the locals, connecting with local government, um, and then trying to also enforce the United Nations mandate while we were there. Um, so, um, and that was, at the, the latter part of my tour, we, were, we also focused on reintroducing, like I said earlier, the population into these, these villages. So for me, it was a, it was a huge, um, hugely, like, growing, was a growth period for me in so far as a young officer, because... I was able to um, learn a bit of the local language, assimilate a little bit of the culture, and I really, really fell in love with the culture over there. I mean, they're such a welcoming, you know, culture. They're, they put family first. It's a very family-focused, generational-type, um, you know, culture that that really embraces everyone. You know, there were villages that I patrolled where I was the first white person that the children had ever seen. You know, and that is something that for me was was mind blowing at the time. So it was very much an eye-opening experience. I had uh, quite a few close calls with uh, um, soldiers from both both the Eritrean and Ethiopian side trying to posture, putting weapons in my face. And of course, we were unarmed. So I had to use a little bit of, uh, you know, charisma, if I, if I could use that term loosely, to uh, navigate those situations. But uh, in general, I felt it was a really good experience. And we're, this is going to be broadcast during Mental Health Week. And, and later, we're going to be talking more about the leadership you're showing post-military on bringing together the veterans to talk about the road to healing from operational stress injuries, uh, the important role of family. We'll get into that. But when I was Minister of Veterans Affairs, one thing that struck me was how many vets had operational stress injuries and many of the most uh, traumatic episodes or the feeling of regret and not being able to leave part of their past related to UN tours, where they saw things happen uh, in the local environment, uh, there was a sense of, of being powerless to help sometimes because of the rules of engagement. And because it was deemed peacekeeping, they did not want to talk about trauma exposure injuries when they got back. It was seen as not war, it's peacekeeping, therefore I can't be injured. Do you have any experiences with that? Or, or did you see how people could fall into that cycle given the fact that it's, it's deemed peacekeeping but you're at risk almost constantly i can absolutely see how people can get caught up in that it's the sort of us and them i call it trauma comparison um it's it's an unfortunate reality of our professions like especially the military profession and first responders that um you know i you know people will compare even within the same mission people will compare their experiences and uh, and i won't i won't draw it forward to afghanistan yet but Essentially, you know, people will endure things and experience them all very differently based on their character, their upbringing, their training, their resiliency. So um, certainly the us versus them type mentality of, you know, 
you you didn't go you didn't you weren't in the Balkans during this period therefore you couldn't have seen the horrors of war in that country well that's false you know we 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 had soldiers experience that right up until the last rotation in Bosnia um including all the ones that were you know that were sort of partner type you know related missions like Macedonia and etc Croatia so um I did experience that a little bit but quite honestly the things I saw there which kind of were against my moral code didn't really nest or come to roost until later on and when I started to have because it's cumulative for me my trauma and my complex trauma so it really came later on when I realized some of the things I'd seen there really didn't jive with me but I it just didn't compute at the time if I could use that language yeah no I have a very good friend someone that uh, you probably know as well who um experienced exposure to um crimes being committed by soldiers from other UN nations on the tour he was on and a sense of reporting it, but being powerless to help the people he thought he was there serving that when he got back and, and was struggling, he was unwilling or made it difficult for him to get help. So this, I like how you call it the trauma comparison. I've, I've heard veterans do it comparing what Roto through Afghanistan they were on, um, you know, the ramp ceremonies and um, trauma is not uh, comparable. And as you said, some people, the exposure to it triggers childhood trauma and, and a range of things in everyone's complex ecosystem of mental wellness. Um, so the Eritrea tour was foundational. You got back from that tour and where did you go? Were you back to Valcartier or is that when you went to the, the Dragoons? No, actually, then I, I took a most officers in the army will go through a sort of period of regimental tours and then back into the institution. So my most of my time not spent at a regiment or a unit was spent uh, in, in the uh, institution, the instructional piece and teaching. So I actually moved on to the armored school um, and I was fortunate to be an instructor there for almost four years. And I loved I loved that aspect of teaching. You know, when you're able to do your trade and, 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 and you know, partake in informing the next generation of the various ranks within your core, that's an honor. So um, it was there that I actually shifted regimental cap badges and went from the 12 RBC and became a Dragoon, which is the uh, regiment that I when I, when I, when I retired. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's sort of where I where I went from there was to Gagetown, so New Brunswick. Um, and from there, um, I, I launched into Ontario, and I've been in Ontario bouncing around various bases and postings for the better part of over a decade now. Any time with the Ontars in Oshawa or just immense respect for that fine regiment? I have, They're in my riding. <laughs> I, well, I absolutely have immense respect for the Ontars. I work with them very closely because, as you know, having been very active within the Armored Corps, um, I, I had the, the ability to sort of influence um, sort of the reserve force when I was one of my jobs was a, I was a career manager. So, you know, I've had some very interesting roles when I wasn't in regimental duty, all of which really helped. They helped develop me as a leader overall, because, you know, I was rough around the edges when I left Cape Breton. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> um, some of the most patriotic down to earth Canadians I've ever met are Cape Bretoners and love them. There's quite a few here on the Hill. And so I think you brought, as you said, it was your character that drew you into the Canadian Armed Forces. And I think that's why you 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 moved up to the ranks in the ranks, that character, that that leadership that you're continuing to show. It's interesting, the Ontario Regiment, 
view its first commanding officer as Sam Sharp. And you're speaking at the ninth annual Sam Sharp mental health breakfast to, to talk about your career and, and your work with, uh, with veterans. So it's, it's, it wasn't an armored officer. It was started at the 116th battalion during world war one, but there's this connection that we're going to uh, maybe highlight next week. So your first tour in Afghanistan in 2006, were you still a captain? Were you a major then? Tell us about that tour. Well, no, actually I was promoted major pretty young in my career. Uh, initially went in, in a role they call it acting while so employed. So like I filled a role specific for the mission as the planner for the task force. So it was a really, uh, you know, it was a really daunting task to t- to fill that role initially because I was a young major, but uh, given the opportunity and some great mentorship from, from some of the senior leaders I had on that tour, I was able to sort of get right into the sort of planning aspect of essentially evolving what was a small battle group into this massive task force Um, because the the sort of growth from just having sort of a battle group in Afghanistan to having an entire task force with enablers and a general officer happened during my tour. Um, So about halfway through, we went from a very small headquarters, very modest to this very large headquarters that had a lot more enablers. So there were a lot of challenges on that tour. In, in, In addition to sort of the beginning of 2006, we really started to see combat um, heighten uh, with the you know the prevalence of IEDs um, and those type of tactics in the counterinsurgency, um, we realized as Canadians that we needed more in the fight, and that's as you know when we started sending more of our enablers from Canada. Yeah, the the your, that's the transition years after the original sort of ISAF, um, right. a- Andrew Leslie being sent in to that, and then building up, I guess you were there under General Fraser. Is that he was in charge General, when you were? General, yeah. General Dave Fraser was there and he was RC South. So he was in charge of the entire mission in that part of Kandahar. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, it was uh, General Tim Grant, uh, who's the task force oh, yeah. commander mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, he presently is out in Alberta, I think, retired. But it was, uh, it was, it was a really um, tough way for us to, to develop that headquarters because the fighting on 306 in the, during the fighting season, Operation Medusa, and some of those very famous battles now in our in our history um, took place on that tour. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I have very, very, very different opinions on if we were ready for all of that. But essentially, it was it was a, it was a shock for us as Canadians, I think, to lose so many so quickly, um, and you know, not to be prepared for that type of warfare. Yeah, no, um, certainly that's where the medal of the Canadians themselves, the soldiers, uh, shone through because the, the, were we ready for that? There's been a, a, a lot talked about on that. And we knew going in to Kandahar that we were choosing one of the most dangerous provinces in the country. Some of our NATO friends were in other parts of the country that didn't have that exposure to risk. But those years, and as you said, the increasing IED attacks led to us pivoting on some things. It led to acquiring the Chinooks. It led to a change in tactics to to protect our people and to respond to to the acts of the Taliban. Um, and how were you when you got back after that mission? Um, were you able to decompress? Um, did you want to get back there? I talked to some some guys, and the next thing they were doing was trying to get back on another tour. How were you coming out of that? Well, that's a great question because I came, I went on tour wanting to be 
you know, quote unquote, and outside the wire. So in a combat role, but I was in a support role in on the Kandahar airfield. Um, so when I got back from my first tour, nothing again had really set in, in so far as the things I'd seen, I'd lost a good friend over there um, to an attack, a very good friend. Um, and so that hadn't really settled in because I just wanted to go back. So you're not wrong when people feel that way. Um, I, I can legitimately understand why, you know, I had for, I, I had a certain, you know, soldiers in my my squadron the second time I went to Afghanistan who'd been there three, four times and not and not like with a lot of time in between either. So, yes, the draw for me to go back in a combat role and in, 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 which ended up being 2010. Uh, that's where my focus was. So I went, I came back, I was posted right away out of the regiment again, off to Kingston this time into the training system again, um, and essentially waited my two years before I could be given a squadron, a reconnaissance squadron to go in uh, with the, the first Canadian uh, regiment battle group um, in 2010. Um, if you're comfortable talking about it, who was the, the close friend you lost on that first tour? So we lost two soldiers, both from my regiment, uh, in an attack. Uh, Corporal Jim Mitchell um, and uh, Sergeant Craig Gillum both died um, on an attack while we were building a road um, just north of uh, Masungar in Panjway. Um, it was just it was part of that building that we called Root Summit at the time, and it was just a really, really um, the Taliban just had the upper hand on us, and it was an ambush that went wrong, mm-hmm. um, and they they. They, they perished overseas. So, you know, I, I, I trained with Jim. Uh, we call him Mitch at the time. Uh, that was his nickname in the army. Like we trained for a lot of competitions together and he was just salt of the earth. You know, he just loved what he did. Um, so that, you know, and I saw his name on the board and that's sort of, you talk about how people have responses, you know, the various traumatic responses for me, I wasn't with him, but just seeing his name on the board and being forced to carry on with my work day of 18, 19, 20 hours, mm-hmm. Um, and sort of not have any time to sort of grieve that, you know, that added, you know, added stress to me that I didn't even realize until almost a decade later, almost yeah. a full decade later. Yeah, it gets stored away because uh, you're so intense on the on the mission, you tuck it away, thinking that it's behind you, but it's really not. Um, was that the period, the road construction that was sort of the hyena road uh movie on on the war was that sort of the period that uh, that's, that's it's exactly the time yeah, absolutely yeah no it sounds sounds like a, a great movie uh made by a great canadian and as minister i got to watch it with some afghan vets that i could invite uh um and it's it's important to 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 talk about the friends i'm only on one social media platform linkedin but it's incredible to see one day a post pop up 16 years ago today um, you know, Sergeant Mitchell or, you know, someone passed and it's a tribute from a friend who is now out of the forces, but keeping that memory of their, of their comrade alive. It's, it's both, uh, sad because it's a reminder, but it's also inspiring of what the regimental family means. They're, they're always with you. Um, and then your second tour in 2010, uh, you got that outside the wire, you got that combat, um, Speak about that tour a bit and uh, impact on your your career and your own uh, your own wellness. Sure. Um, so in 2010, I mean, the way it, we sort of evolved in our getting ready for Afghanistan was such that we training would be almost three times the length that the actual tour would be. You know, so you train for almost a year and a half to get ready to go for six to seven months. 
So it was a long road to war, as we used to call it, um, getting ready for getting the squadron ready, the battle group ready, and all the various elements that went with that. Um, we hit the ground in a really rough way. You know, the first day on the ground, and I talk about this in my book uh, in detail, my soldiers experienced their first ramp ceremony the very first day on the ground in Kandahar Airfield before they even deployed outside the wire to do their handover. Um, and that's when we lost uh, P.O. Blake. Um, and it, it was just terrible for us. For, for me, I felt terrible for them because, you know, I, I had a very young squadron, a lot of young uh, male and female soldiers and medics and engineers, et cetera, that work with me. Um, and then fast forward, you know, after we'd taken over, um, we were having what we call a step up, which was a pretty major tactical move when we moved from one major location to another. Um, during that day, um, I just happened to get out of my vehicle about an hour prior to do to do a tactical maneuver with a, a, an accompany, an OC, an officer commanding who just was next door to where I was working, and my vehicle hit an IED. And I lost my driver, uh, Trooper Larry Rudd, from Brantford, Ontario. He uh, he perished in that IED explosion. The remainder of the crew were badly injured. So we started our tour having lost probably one of the you know most you know joyful soldiers and most pleasant you know personalities within the squadron, um, and you know that set the conditions. It was like we 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 no longer had this sort of dust about us you know we weren't not our our judgment wasn't clouded um about what we were doing there and it was an unfortunate like shocking start for us for me it was very crippling and i had to again push it down and and manage as the leader of about 115 person squadron um you know having lost larry so early in the tour so you know i'm i i from there um I tried to refocus the squadron and we did very successfully with my Sergeant major at the time, uh, who's my, you know, sort of right-hand person, um, get things back on the rails, but it was very difficult for my soldiers and for me to sort of bounce back after that um, incident. And then less than a month after he had passed just within um, view of one of our operation posts, um, we lost two Canadian medics, Crystal Giesebrecht and Andrew Miller. In, a, in an IED incident where it was within sight of one of our observation posts. So, you know, like my soldiers of that squadron started essentially their combat tour, like very deep into loss. You know, it was very confusing start. You know, we were also redefining the battle space at the time. That was during a, a change, a significant change of uh, general officers uh, due to an incident in theater. So it was just, it was very chaotic start for us. And it sort of, that was sort of the, the trend for the tour was managing chaos it was from one incident to another um, because halfway through tours when I, when I crashed in the Chinook. So. Yeah. And let me, let me unpack that for a second. And as I said, this is uh, you're in the driver's seat here to talk about it, but you know, Canadians around that time, um, I was a civilian that a few times were on those highway of heroes and all the Canadians held in their heart, um, the losses of on behalf of our country, but the kid from Niels Harbor, Cape Breton, you've got that large group of Canadians who, who lose, uh, lose, as you said, one of the more popular jovial members of the team at the start, certainly it, 
showed them uh, that their tour was going to be one where they had to be alert, they had to be ready. But as a leader, how did you try and help your your team through that loss and and keep them motivated? The tax at hand, uh, the task at hand is that where the training kicks in and the fact that you'd been training for the year and a half. Does that help? Does the does the ramp ceremony help? How did you tackle that as a leader? That's a great question. It gives me goosebumps, actually, uh, when you say that, because it takes me back to, to Larry's ramp ceremony specifically. Uh, I was given some sage advice by, by my battle group commander at the time, who's presently the deputy commander of the Army. Um, and I was told just, Christian, you have to refocus, and whatever you do, find a way for them to rebuild that trust in you. And so what I did was I, I took myself from a mounted squadron commander role, sort of the person who didn't necessarily do any of the sort of dirty work of like getting out of the vehicle and looking for bombs. So I went from doing that to being the point on the vital point searches. So I was the person on the road leading them dismounted because within my tactical group, um, we traveled all the time. We used those roads daily. And for them to see the officer commanding out I felt that was the best place for me to be because I had so much confidence in my chain of command below me to get, you know, the business done within the squadron. I just wanted them to be able to see, you know, he is just like the rest of us. He's taking the same risk as the rest of us. Um, and he believes in this mission. He believes in what we're doing. And, and that, that was one of the things I did. The other thing was I changed my ability to communicate with the squadron on a daily basis. I felt that whatever information I had, they needed. And, you know, information is power. And so I didn't hold back any of the information tactically or what was going on in the world at that given day. I communicated that with the, with the soldiers every day so that they felt like they were in touch with both reality. So that, that home, that nexus of, you know, the NHL playoffs, et cetera, but also with where we were and what was happening within the battle space. Um, so, you know, sometimes those were pretty grim type messages over the radio at night about losses, about tactical failures, about, um, about sort of, you know, ramp ceremonies, all kinds of really, you know, the facts of the day, but I also tried to balance that with, you know, trying to boost morale because, you know, that is so key. And as Canadians, we're really good at boosting morale and keeping a good sense of humor, even though it might be dark humor sometimes. Um, so that's, those are sort of some of the tactics I use to sort of get refocused. I myself never took care of me during that time. And so I started to have not risky behavior, but I started to, you know, this is where I, think I started the struggle, but didn't know what it was. Um, well, and as a leader, you really couldn't let yourself struggle. And that's probably the way you felt. And um, no, thanks for sharing that with us. Because, you know, some of what you did was the traditional leadership by example, you you dismounted, and you were there showing you were exposing yourself to the, the same risks, walking the same roads. Um, a lot of buddy checks, the fact you'd be able to be directly see how they, they they were doing and and boost their morale and then communication i think um which i think for some folks you're in that crucible where you're constantly checking one another you're constantly and then you decompress and you come home and you all scatter that that also makes for challenges later on and we'll talk about that next but the final thing when i picked up parade state zero uh, and thank you for sending it through our, our mutual friend, MP Alex Ruff. Uh, I made him go for a run with me to uh, <laughs> before he handed it over. There you another, go. 
and he was doing a buddy check on me for, uh, by the way, which is very uh, military like. Um, but that's when I realized your connection to my good friend, Bill Fielding and, uh, and Blowtorch 61. And it shows the difference between your tours, like the early in, uh, impact of IEDs led the government to acquire the Chinook uh, to, to, to minimize those risks. They never disappeared, but there was more ability to move by air. But not a lot of Canadians realized because the government, of course, didn't talk much about it to, to give the Taliban any credit. But one of our Chinooks was, was shot down. Um, uh, a real hero uh, was the pilot that helped you guys reach the ground in sort of a controlled crash manner. Uh, everyone survived, which is incredible. And then you were the, the senior officer on the, on the ground. Talk a little bit about that, that uh, Chinook and Blowtorch 61. Sure. The, uh, the event and some of the irony in the training we do in the military is that when we were in Fort Irwin, California, well, just to sort of a preempt to preempt the actual crash. One of the incidents that we had to do during training was a major aircraft disaster. And at the time I had to respond to that incident, like as per the main events list, you know, the training that we conduct. And at the time I thought it was a ridiculous, ridiculous scenario. I thought this is not going to happen in Canadian history. It hasn't happened in a long time. And, you know, we have escorts for these, you know, these Chinooks, et cetera. So I responded kind of like in a bit of a sarcastic, you know, I'll go do this, this, this training and I'll get assessed for how, how I did achieve you know, the results. Um, but we're never going to do it guys. Just, you know, we're never going to do this. Right. So fast forward to the 5th of August, 2010, um, you know, we're just leaving and taking off from Masumgar, which was one of our major uh, forward operating bases. Uh, we were doing nap of the earth, which as you know, is, you know, close sort of following the sort of, curvature of the ground and uh you know we got this like someone had taken a sledgehammer to the side of the, the chinook and essentially what had happened was a, a rocket propelled grenade had, had gone into the fuel cavity on 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 my side so the left side of the aircraft and it engulfed in flames you know so here we have you know we're probably about i don't know how many two to three hundred meters above the ground um maybe a bit higher and um in flames, just, you know, thick, thick black smoke from burning aluminum and jet fuel, et cetera. And there's 22 souls on board and there's probably about 15 in the back. Um, and so essentially everyone rushes to the front of the Chinook and there's, it's chaotic and people think that they're, they're on fire because of the extreme heat and the floor is tenting from small arms fire, but nothing is penetrating. So we're not essentially getting shot, but essentially everyone's getting into smoke inhalation. And of course, cool and collective Bill Fielding uh, as the aircraft captain. The next thing I know, I look out and we're on the ground. You know, it was a hard landing, but not what anyone, everyone expected. People started lifting their feet, you know, because that's your training. So you don't break your legs. Um, so there was all kinds of things that happened. But, it, you know, we're talking the span of, I don't know, how many seconds felt like days. You know, I personally remember thinking to myself, I should jump out now. You know, I thought <laughs> I would, you know, I have, I had all these thoughts, you know, but um, so when we landed on the ground, um, you know, it was sort of, you know, sort of leaning towards uh, the right. So the actual door exit was closest to the ground. And my sergeant major at the time, Ken Pichet, uh, who's another fine dragoon, uh, he, he took control of exiting people on that side of the aircraft. And I went to the other side. Um, and so I was the last to get out of the Chinook. Um, of, and, but what I did was I fell out of the window 
I didn't actually, because of the flames and because of the smoke, I couldn't see if it was clear the door. So when I fell out, I flipped upside down and ended up injuring my hip. So uh, it was it was really crazy. But when I did come to, I ended up getting out and go. I moved forward to where I saw the rest of the passengers. And it was at that time that Bill looked at me and he goes, you're the senior guy. I've done my job. Now you do yours. And so that was all the motivation that I needed from an, this Air Force captain to put everyone on the opposite side of the wall um, and to get low and to carry on. We were still under contact at the time. Um, so the enemy was still engaging us. And now that the ammunition that was inside the helicopter from all the weapons and the various things that stayed behind was starting to cook off. So, mm -hmm. was, you know, random bullets were whizzing by our head um, and into the mud walls where these, uh, you know, the grape fields and the marijuana fields essentially are all sort of being sort of cornered off. And so we had the benefit of um, of having my actual TAC, which is my tactical group, come and be first on scene and uh suppress the enemy and then we we're able to load everyone into the into these armored vehicles but you know that was the first time in my knowledge that a canadian helicopter has crashed where everyone's walked away and um you know if we fast forward to almost the set you know it's the 6th of august 2011 an, an american chinook went down almost in the same province i um, mean you know 37 souls all perished you know so as soon as we landed, you know, I was, I was, adrenaline was just, just running, coursing through me. It didn't matter that I kind of busted my hip a little bit. And um, it was just a matter of being angry. You know, I got through that experience with anger. I was so disappointed. We were so close to landing in my, my camp. I had other things to do. We had two senior American officials on board, civilians, um, who actually managed the incident better than some of the soldiers did on the ground. Um, and you know, I still take in contact with those guys, you know, it's a connection you'll never lose, you know? Oh, no, no, totally. Um, it's remarkable actually. And it is, uh, the, the, the first time since world war II where something like that happened. And so thank God for that training you did in California, which probably kicked in, you know, that's, that's kind of kicks in at that time of stress. You forget about your injuries and you, you start leading, um, so both both you and Sergeant Major Pichet were award, were awarded mention in dispatches. Both uh, the Sergeant Major and myself, in addition to the co-pilot and mm -hmm. one of the door gunners, um, who was who was instrumental in making sure that people evacuated. He had to actually dismount one of the big machine guns from the window so that people could evacuate, and he did that under duress. Um, and then the co-pilot was obviously key in helping Bill land the uh, land the Chinook. Um, but on the ground, it was myself and the Sergeant Major. And, uh, you know, it it kind of, you know, worked out that way. Um, you know, that would be a normal command type structure, a command team. It worked out that we were both on the Chinook because we were leaving the Kandahar Airfield, having been there for a, a pretty important meeting. So I had all kinds of things going through my mind at the time, but um, I didn't expect that to happen that day. Yeah. And, and, um, and Bill Fielding was awarded the Medal of Military Valor for his uh, heroism that day, as you said, for something so chaotic and dangerous for everyone to walk away. Some injuries, I know Bill had had back surgery a few years later, um, pretty remarkable, uh, remarkable in the air and on the ground. Um, so thank you to everyone, part of Blowtorch 61. So look, we've talked a few war stories and, uh, it is Mental Health Week. You're going to be the speaker at the Sam Sharp Mental Health Breakfast, allowing someone to talk about their road to wellness. 
after hanging up their uniform. Um, your operational stress injury is cumulative, meaning it's it's something that is not attributable to one specific trauma or one event. And I think Hollywood has sort of sensationalized some of this to, to the incident of your friend dying in your arms. And that one incident causes PTSD or an operational stress injury. But the vast majority of cases, it's cumulative. Um, talk about that in, in terms of, of when, you, when you got out, because I did Parade State Zero, maybe tell a bit about where the name comes from. I understood that, but leaving military leadership to survive, that was a very interesting subtitle. And I think that probably relates to how the buildup of all this trauma finally caught up with you. Yes. Um, for, for my PTSD and, you know, it's complex trauma. It, it definitely was cumulative. Um, and, and what happened for me, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, I saw things in Eritrea that didn't settle with me. And then when I, I lost people when I was in 2006, 2007, um, and never managed that grief. But when I went in 2010 and then had so many things happen successively, um, when I came home, you know, I was, I was a hot mess, as I like to say. And so at the time, you know, I didn't understand what was happening to me. You know, I didn't understand the symptoms. I didn't understand the requirement. You know, I wanted to numb. I didn't want to feel things. I would have these sort of emotional outbursts while driving in the car. And so I sort of just, again, continued to try to manage it through work by working more. Um, and then I lost my mother in 2013. And having lost her, you know, she was a beacon for me. Um, in my life at the time, having, you know, just come from Afghanistan, she, you know, she found my tour very difficult, you know, most moms do. Um, so I lost her. And then what had happened was some of the soldiers who served with me um, had come home and within their demons didn't manage them well and committed suicide. So I mentioned earlier that I lost Larry to an IED when he, my replacement driver at the time was a young man named Brendan Shepard from New Brunswick. And uh, when we came home, he uh, he was tormented by the things that he had done and seen, and he committed suicide um, just shortly after our arrival. And then, you know, the 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 incident that made me realize that I could no longer move on was actually when 2016. It wasn't a combat tour related incident. It's when I was commanding officer of the base in Meaford, Ontario, and a young man from my hometown uh, named Andrew Fitzgerald came to my base for training and on completion of his training, um, he ended up committing suicide. And we looked for him in the uh, Owen Sound area for about six days before we found him in Georgian Bay. Um, and so, you know, what had happened for me in 2016, it was sort of that was the, that's what made the pot overflow. Um, I, I was no longer sleeping. I was numbing with all sorts of, you know, alcohol, you know, tobacco. I was on medication at the time. And I just, I had a breaking moment. And, um, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight is 2020, you know, I look back and, I, you know, had I had earlier intervention, you know, maybe 2007, 2010, 2012, there were moments in time in my career, where had I just slowed down enough, um, you know, I think that things would have all the symptoms and signs would have been saying you need help. But one of the other things that's hard for me to manage, you know, now leaving the military to survive was that no one else recognized that in me either. So whether they recognized it and ignored it um, or they recognized it and just didn't want to, you know, 
they didn't think I was open to discussing it. Um, th that's also some of the, you know, that's some of the problem within this, the, the system that we have is that, you know, they just, people just expect leaders, you know, depending on the role they are in to be, you know, resilient and never, never take the proverbial knee, but you know, that the stress is, you know, there and the, the tempo is there, you know, the people should be getting that attention. Yeah. And then in your case as well, there were probably some of those uh, decompression points off ramp, uh, you know, earlier after your first Afghan tour that, as you said, had there been some programming, some supports, there might've been an, an emptying of the pot or the glass that's overfilling. Um, but there wasn't. And in fact, you're getting higher command. And by the time you're the base commander at, at Meaford, that incident with, with Andrew Fitzgerald, I guess, was, was an overflow. So you were doing what a warrior thinks they're supposed to do is continue to take that assignment, continue to lead, uh, you know, pain is only weakness, leaving the body, all, all the stuff we learn. The bravado of, that exists. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, but nobody else, as you said, noticed it and said, Hey, maybe before this next assignment, Christian needs uh, a bit of, a bit of downtown downtime. He needs to talk to someone. Is that why the leaving military leadership to survive came into it? Because you were in that leadership position and for your own wellness, for, for your family, for the role of Christian Lillington, not just the soldier, you needed to get out of that, that position to survive yourself. Absolutely. And for me, um, I couldn't do both, you know, because for, I wanted, if I stayed in, I would want to be, you know, all in, you know, head down, continue to keep the sort of same momentum that I'd started to acquire in my career. Um, but, you know, that breaking point in October 2016 was so, it was so significant that I, I just, it, it, it really was an overwhelming, you know, hit the wall type of experience for me. But it was also a relief to be able to go to the, the medical system. And, and, and I actually had someone who was a friend of mine who I could confide in at the time because I was the commanding officer of the base. And, and so I, I felt awkward about going to the medical support unit, but I was able to do it. And just doing that, that relief, that pressure release was massive. Um, it didn't solve pro any of my problems or my conditions and um, like because it is an injury. But, you know, that was the start of my recovery was admitting that I actually was struggling was the start of my recovery. No matter how strong or prepared a soldier is for battle, even warriors can break. You know, that's what I started the podcast on. That's on the back of your book. Talking to someone uh, was, a, was a recognition that you were injured. And what, what is interesting, my co-host for the Sam Sharp uh, breakfast is Romeo Dallaire, who, when we started this, uh, nine years ago, was a senator, a liberal senator, conservative MP. We made this nonpartisan. We know Romeo's stories, you know, uh, waking up on park benches. And and because at that time, the forces didn't even really know the term operational stress injury. There were no clinics. There was no, no nothing. We're getting better, but we've got a hell of a lot uh, more way to go. Because as you said, there could have been times where... Um, some of the injuries that were accumulating with you could have been identified. But as with so many veterans I've spoken to over the years, one of the key elements of the recovery journey is family. And in your case, I know Kelly is an important part of, of 
of that warrior surviving and and thriving afterwards to help others. Talk a little bit about the role of family for you and and how that helped you in your journey post uniform. That's a that's a great um, segue into my life with with my family. Is that um, I'd like to say a couple things before that. I mean, the role of family is critical, but also the impact on family is something that you need to almost look at first. And so I know personally, my illness impacted my family, both uh, my four children, my three stepchildren, Kelly, my sort of immediate family, you know, those who are closest to me, because when I first got sick, um, and uh, I was first, you know, recognized my injury, um, I really struggled a lot with emotional regulation, which is not uncommon for people with complex PTSD. But, you know, if we look at all the supports we have in place, um, you know, it's about breaking the cycle, right, for our children. So, you know, like my grandfather, when he got back from World War II, he had no help, right? And if we look now at the supports we have in place, I mean, it's, we've come full circle on our ability to, to, to help the veteran, but the, the families still get lost in the mix. And so my family um, dynamic is, is, very, is very unique. But if I didn't have Kelly in my corner and I didn't have the support of my of our children, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to recover at all Um, because that sort of having that that uh, that support system in place has been critical for 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 me to to move forward on a daily basis. Um, But it comes at a cost for families. You know, I I I endured, you know, several years where um, I, I don't think I was necessarily stable, a stable role model for my children. So the impact on the children um, is lost a little bit. I mean, there are, there are lots of good initiatives out there right now, like a program I just did that you're very familiar with called Can Praxis out in Alberta. Um, that was the first program in about six years of, of going on several programs that I was able to attend with, with my spouse, with my partner. And Kelly and I just recently did that. And, you know, I, my regret is that we don't do things and look at the family um, family dynamic earlier in someone's illness. Like, um, you know, even if you look at the treatment that people will get for their PTSD, usually it's talk therapy. Usually it's a one-on-one type talk therapy. So, you're, you know, you know the, the veteran or the first responder is getting good help. But meanwhile, at home, you know, where things might be, you know, not smooth, there's lots of abuse that comes with uh, PTSD and not just physical abuse. People think automatically physical abuse, but emotional and psychological abuse can be just as destructive to children. So, so what am I saying? Um, I'm saying that the family dynamic is absolutely key, but for what we need to do moving forward, we need to sort of ensure that, um, that the spouses, the partners, the significant other is, is also taken care of because vicarious trauma, secondary trauma is a real thing. And mm-hmm. it's, it's an unfortunate like reality that I know that I've given some of my, my injury, like it is sort of, it is now a bit on the shoulders of my children. You know, my oldest child and I, we, we really struggled in 2016 moving forward. Um, and she's, you know, she's a mature young woman now, but I know that some of the damage, those damaged relationships and trying to reconcile those, it is a very difficult journey. Mm-hmm. The transference um, and I, I often call it caregiver trauma because the family is there trying their best to help and support, but end up 
taking on elements uh, of the injury as well. Um, you talked about Campraxis. Yeah, know uh, Stephen and the team really well. Big, big fan of equine therapy. Tried to support that um, as minister. There's also couples overcoming PTSD every day. Uh, Cope, um, run by uh, Chris Linford uh, uh, out of BC. Uh, Chris spoke at the Sam Sharp in our in our first year. I, I agree. I think the more supports there can be because the wellness of the veteran and and having those first conversations, trying to avoid uh, substance abuse and, and loss of career, families involved in all aspects of that, because uh, the, the real spike spiral begins when job is lost, family is lost, hope is lost. And then you you can see uh, people dying by suicide and Sam Sharp, you know, the, the MP we named this after fought at Vimy Ridge died by suicide. We couldn't even talk about it in the past. Now we're trying to talk about it in a way that I think, um, allows people to have these conversations, which is why we started this event years ago to allow a veteran to talk about their journey to wellness, because we, we don't often talk about how hard it is but the hope offered by someone that's been on that journey before gives a, a roadmap for others. And that's what you are doing now with, with Warriors for Life. In fact, uh, the soldier you spoke about, the tragic young man in Meaford, um, you're honoring his name, you're bringing people together, Warriors 4, as in the number 4life.ca, this is a bit of your leadership for others in the mental wellness space. Talk a bit about that. For, for me, uh, as I started to navigate, you know, my injury and look for programs and, and different outlets, I found that, you know, the internet's great. It's a huge worldwide web, as we all know, but there's so much information, but also disinformation and it's disjointed. So my goal sort of in a Canadian, from a Canadian perspective, because there's a lot in the U.S., uh, in Australia and some of those countries, there's a lot that is established, but none of the sort of major elements of mental health, wellness, and the, the big players that are out there are linked through one site. And so I'll, one of the, the intense, one of many intents that I had with this was to make it a portal, you know, a resource for other people. Um, so when they cut, when they came to it, they could navigate, you know, the various, you know, venues and institutions where you could do programs and, you know, just generally connect with things you know it's also a motivational platform um and so the intent behind warriors for life is is sort of multifaceted but it's to there to support veterans and first responders who are struggling that's good and what do you hope to do obviously you're you're speaking here in ottawa you've spoken at the royal military college I know you're speaking within your community uh, in Wasega Beach or around where you live. Is it going to be a combination of speaking, uh, mentorship of others, uh, providing this portal? What what else do you hope to accomplish with Warriors for Life? Well, I also hope to accomplish, I, I've established, as we, met, we talked about Andrew Fitzgerald earlier, so we've established one bursary in his name at a high school in my hometown, Cabot High School. And uh, the intent is to, to develop you know, bursaries uh, for other first responders and veterans who've passed in communities around Canada. So my goal is for this to develop so that we have 
many named bursaries out there, um, you know, in various provinces across Canada, um, just so that the legacy of these soldiers and these, you know, first responders, um, they, you know, it's it's not lost. You know, Andrew's Andrew's situation is tragic, um, but we want it, you know, for his family, but also for the community, right? them a way you know for him to carry on and so we we did that with with his bursary we plan on doing many more and the proceeds of the book essentially that's where i've you know that's where that has all been going you know it's very early in the stages both warriors for life and the bursary program uh so i'm just getting that established you know looking for a good lawyer to help me out sort of get it get it to where it needs to be you know in the charitable status but um it is it's got momentum a lot has happened since the january when i released the book uh, and it's very motivating no it uh it is your new mission there's there's now there's what now one back on parade as they may say and your <laughs> that's your, excellent yes. your your new parade is <laughs> is not on the parade square but it's in the the civi sphere sphere where you're connecting people and uh, this is a call out to some of my friends in Trouble Victor and some of the veterans organizations that might be listening. Uh, is there a lawyer that can do some pro bono for uh, Christian and Warriors for Life? Um, uh, vets Helping Vets has been literally the most inspiring thing I've seen in my work with True Patriot Love, my time as a parliamentarian. The amount of vets who get out, sort out their own stuff, and then the first thing they want to do is help others sort out their stuff. like. It, it's inspiring, and it's a mission that I think you and Kelly, I think, uh, already are making a difference. And I think speaking at the Sam Sharp and continuing to tell that story, having people look into Parade State Zero, leaving military leadership to survive, available on warriorsforlife.ca. Uh, bravo Zulu, Christian. It's a, it's an impressive way to help others. I, uh, I really appreciate um, those kind words, Aaron, and I really appreciated being here today. The invite for the Sam Sharp breakfast, uh, you know, the the importance of mental health is still something I think we're all very aware. Um, I think it's still a leadership issue within those big organizations, which we represent, uh, like the military and first responder community. And uh, my goal is to continue to advocate for you know, wellness, complete wellness for people as we move forward. So we see PTSD as an injury, not some sort of disease um, that that is, you know, terminal. It can be fatal, but we hope to avoid that. Well said. And I'll close with uh, one of the reviews in your book that I thought uh, really summarized it well when it said Christian was decorated for his feats of valor on the battlefield in Afghanistan, but perhaps his most courageous act is Parade State Zero your book, because you're making yourself vulnerable. That warrior is taking off the, 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 the uniform and helmet and talking about your own struggles, your own journey. Um, it is not easy, but these discussions save lives because the visible wounds of service, people understand. Uh, there's usually a one treatment option to help heal those wounds or or give that person more mobility or 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 rehabilitation with the invisible wounds of service there is no one single way to treat uh, but understanding is the most important step so thanks for your courageous second career as an author and an advocate <laughs> well i appreciate that and it's definitely uh the whole identity crisis is something we didn't talk about but it's definitely 
uh, a, a move in the right direction for me. It, it's re-motivated me. It's helped me find my confidence, which is a, which is something that happens to people with PTSD is the self-esteem tends to take a bit of a hit. So it's definitely helped me refocus, um, and which is, which is good for everybody in my life. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Christian Lillington, Lieutenant Colonel, retired, Canadian veteran, partner, father, great Canadian, and the pride of Niels Harbor, Cape Breton. Thank you for being on the Blue Skies Political Podcast with us today. Check out Christian's website, warriors for the number 4 lifeca Parade State Zero is available there as our resources. And look, if any of veterans um, are listening to this, always reach out. Sometimes discussing Afghanistan, discussing war can trigger your own trauma, your own feelings. Reach out to a friend. There are resources. Uh, Wounded Warriors Canada, our partner, Bell Let's Talk, our other partner in Sam Sharp, uh, Warriors for Life. There are so many resources. You're never, ever alone. And the sun will rise tomorrow. And there's people that want to hear from you. So if this conversation um, has triggered some feelings in you, make sure you talk to your buddy, do a buddy check, or get some help. The conversations are roadway to healing. And Parade State Zero talks about that. And difficult conversations are sometimes the most important ones to have. So this week is Mental Health Week in Canada. It's a time to talk, to reduce the stigma, but also to plug people into the treatment options, the programs, the supports that weren't there in the past, but are there today. And someone can go from struggling or having challenges to leading and helping as Christian has, as Romeo Dallaire has, as so many veterans across this country have still contributing long after they hang up their uniform. They're still serving this country and it's great people. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Thank you for this very special Mental Health Week edition of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. If you want any questions answered on Sam Sharp on mental health, please contact me through direct message or through email. This has been a very important discussion. Tune in next week to Blue Sky, another edition with me. Thank you.